Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Our identity is central to who we are as human beings, and it is so often tightly connected to our upbringing and our family. Today's guest, Joel DeCarteret, has a lot to celebrate. He's a renowned filmmaker and a world-class storyteller, making beautifully crafted stories that tug at the heart and move the soul. He's a sought-after keynote speaker and combines film, music and photography in his unique delivery on stage. Amongst all of his successes, though, there has always been a part of Joel that was lost. Joel was born in the Philippines, but was separated from his family and found in a busy marketplace when he was five years of age. It's kind of like every parent's worst nightmare, right? Nearly 31 years on, having been adopted and raised by an Australian family, Joel embarked on what seemed like an impossible mission to track down his birth mother in the Philippines. With virtually nothing to go on except knowing the date and location he was found, Joel undertook a journey that would change his life forever. This is a powerful conversation with Joel that reminds us how important it is to reconnect with our identity. So sit back and soak up all that is Joel DeCarteret. Joel, welcome to the studio. It's it's it's, uh, it's awesome to be here. It's, this is like, as you said, like one of the oldest studios in in Sydney, so it's good to actually be in here. It's such a funky place, isn't yeah. it? When you think about the heritage and the people that have sung in here, part of me thinks I might sound better here, but I'm not going to break <laughs> out into song. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, it's an amazing space and, and I think a really cool opportunity for us to get into some conversations. And yeah. for you, this is really different, isn't it? You're used to being behind the camera and on the other end of sound engineering and production. What's it like? Oh, it's it's um, it's it's fun because I can I just get to rock up and and don't have to sort of you know prepare a few days earlier or you know it's just I can just uh, it's almost like I can just sit here and enjoy it. Good. Mm. I hope you do. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we'll yeah. do all the work to make it sound magic mm. afterwards. Yeah, I'm excited to be. Here. I've been uh, following your podcast and yeah, I like how you orchestrate your conversations and yeah, yeah, I get a lot of value out of it. Thanks, JD. Yeah. Well, look, diving straight into it, we would have heard in the introduction a little piece of your story and part of your story is that um, you were born in the Philippines and at the age of five you were adopted and and came and lived in Australia and lived um, with an Australian family and for the last 31 years have, have been in Australia and had an incredible career and we'll talk a little bit about your career as a storyteller um, and uh, very much an acclaimed filmmaker. And... About 12 months ago, you made a decision <laughs> that would change the story of your life. <laughs> I want to dive in at that point. Mm. What? Tell me a little bit about where an idea formed into a commitment for you and what was that debate in your head between that decision to, to go back to the Philippines and see if you could find your biological family, that, that point of making that decision to make that commitment. Describe that for me. Mm, that's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> well, up to, you know, till last year, I had never really 
floated the idea of even going back to the Philippines and visiting the motherland of where I've come from. I think it was only till I was with Peter Baines uh, in Thailand that it stirred the idea. It brought back those memories of being in the orphanage and and uh, being with this uh, little boy that uh, that really kind of looked into my eyes and said, "I, I get you." Because you were hanging out in an orphanage in Thailand. Yeah, with yeah, yes. Yeah. Mutual so, friend Peter Baines, who yeah supports that charity, and so yeah. was that flashes of you having been in an orphanage, or was it more just a feeling? I think it was both. It was it was the the connection with the similar images that I had in the orphanage, like the beds and all the kids gathering to eat and all the kids playing, but at the same time they were, you know, being part of the household and doing household things and and the the mother carers that were around that really you could just see that love towards the children and it was all about them. And the feeling was that, you know, being around other orphans that have a very similar narrative as me, as in at some point they were separated by their... they were separated from their parents. And even though they were happy and they were smiling, I knew deep down that there was a thing that was missing for them or there was a something about them that made them sort of question where they were and why they were there. And so after that trip and then after making the series for Hands Across the Water, and I guess this is what's, what I love about my job is that when I go and film something, I get to re-experience it again and, and process it through the post-editing phase and it's almost like I relive those memories to a very vivid um, experience because I'm sort of constantly sort of sifting through footage and, and encapsulating and immersing myself back into that moment when I had filmed the, f- um, the kids and after that experience and, and seeing the story and the narrative unfold, it made me curious to, to look at my own narrative it it made it made me kind of question my own um, story, and it made me want to go back and not just relive it, but um, connect to it, because it was, as I said, it was never on the radar, and I had always never really explored my Filipino side. It was always the uh, living in Australia and being Australian and, and and pursuing a career and and you know just checking those boxes as a you know as a as a you know as a Australian thirty five year old you know Filipino Australian and I guess the decision uh, it, it it almost came out of frustration okay. and, and and I think that. A lot of the, those things happen for me out of frustration, out of you, you explore something and you ask, you know, can this be done? Or And someone says, yeah, yeah, we, we, could, you know, we can try. And then when you get disappointed, 
I go, well, why don't I just do it myself? You know, and I guess from a very early age and living in an orphanage, I learned very, very early that, um, and and it's kind of like an advantage, but a sort of a flip on the flip side. It's it's kind of sometimes debilitating, and and it's and that that the notion of you've got to always um, look out for yourself, or you it's um, no, it's it's like. Um, you can't rely on anyone else but yourself. Right. So it was part of that message. Yeah, part of that sort on. of narrative when I sort of yeah. made that story up for okay. myself in the orphanage. Yep. And part of that was like, well, there's, you know, because you don't have any parents, there's no one's going to be there for you. So it's just you. It's just you. Yeah. 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 So it's like, well, if it's just me, then I'm just going to take myself to the Philippines and s- see what I can find. Because did you come back and, um, I, you know, is there particular authorities that you ask and, and kind mm. of go down that path but not, not get any answers? Exactly, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so when I get an idea, I explore it thoroughly as in I talk to as many people as I can. Um, I reached out to a number of organisations um, around adoption and I connected with uh, International Social Service um, and I connected with Adopt Change. And it was only till I found out that International Social Service was providing a free tracing service for adoptees to go and or, uh, to, to help them find um, any sort of trace of family roots or any family. And, uh, and also on top of that, they also provided free counselling services for adoptees. So it kind of opened, it opened my perspective and my, my eyes to to thinking, well, I actually, you know, this is actually a thing. Like people actually take this serious. People actually take this seriously. And I'm not the only one. And I'm exactly, and I'm not the only one. And, and people actually get it and people actually understand um, more to, actually people understand more than what I had sort of understood beforehand. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. That's, you know, I had never, I'd never known the first step in trying to even find my biological parents, it was as as I was as I sort of talk about it um, in conferences. I talk about how um, it was always impossible, you know. And and from an early age, when my mum, when we talk about these things with my mum, she would say, "Yes, yeah, you've got no information, really. I'm, I'm terribly sorry, but it's 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 impossible." It's where the cliche "needle in haystack" kind yeah. of comes from, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and I guess the thing is that, you know, when you start to hear that constantly and when you start to hear your mother explain for you and speak on behalf of you of, of where you've come from and, and your situation, you start to believe it. Yeah. Um, and so growing up and, and going into my adult life, it was just always just put in, I, I kind of always almost boxed it. Yeah, as it just in the, wasn't even an option. Yeah, not on as the table. an impossible box and go, okay, well, that, those are the things that are impossible yeah. and then I'll just put that under the bed. Mm-hmm. And when International Social Service said, you know, we can help, that was really the first step. It was like, oh, here's this first step that was just presented to me. Obviously, I'm going to take it and see where it goes. And so I shared and sort of wrote down my narrative for the very first time and 
you know, I've always had my adoption papers growing up. It was always something that was always accessible and I always was had that free um, access to it. Um, you know, my mum thought it was really important for me to always have those papers but always in a safe, secure place so that, you know, that those papers wouldn't um, get lost. And, you know, I talk about this like with my papers, every milestone of my life that I've opened them up, you know, it was sort of, you know, when I was young and then probably around 11, 12, I'd look at it again and then I think it was 18 and then it was 25 and then it was 35. And so there was those those kind of like those milestones of interest and every time I would look at them, it was always, oh, it's impossible. But And the thing was I had never really paid attention to any dates or to any details. It was just a, a narrative that I didn't really own to be honest. Mm. It was just... a piece of paper. It was a piece of paper and it was the outlining the, the circumstance of of what happened. Right, how I got to here. How I got to here, how I got to here. exactly, yeah. yeah. And for the very first time I was starting to pay attention to the dates that I was lost and just the details and, and after sort of looking at the details quite, quite um, thoroughly, I started to understand that there was discrepancies and there was these things that weren't um, adding up. And so I wrote my narrative and gave it to ISS and, you know, they, they said thank you and we'll send an email to <laughs> to the branch in the Philippines and, you know, I think it was like two months or one month later I followed up and then two months later still no no word. And that was, it was really, it was it was almost like, uh, you know, when you, when you tell a, a child, oh, yeah, we're going to go and get ice cream after after school and, mm. and that never happens. Yeah, it's almost like I wish you hadn't brought up the ice cream. Yeah. Like it would have been yeah, easier exactly. not to see this <laughs> disappointment. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can yeah. imagine that. Yeah. yeah. And that's when I kind of bring it back to it. It, it comes back from disappointment and frustration. Frustration, yeah. And But it's almost like something had been opened in you. Like totally. So I didn't even know the first step. It's what I hear and I guess even for people listening, that thing, whatever it is in your life that feels impossible, that mm. first step is curiosity, mm. is to actually go, oh, I'm a, I am interested in this and mm. where would I go? And it's almost like then what opens? Yeah. But then what do you do with when curiosity is unlocked and you already have this story open? Mm. first time you've tapped into that and, mm. and you still get a no, that actually gives you fire. So what what did you do next out of, that, out of frustration? <laughs> yeah. I just I just booked a flight <laughs> to yeah, Manila. Right. Yeah. Just booked it in advance and and, uh, and just looked at my laptop and going, I'm going back to the motherland. I couldn't couldn't believe it. And and it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't impulsive. I, it was like, it was something that was always, it was, it was in my, in my head after that conversation with ISS and it was like, you know, going, well, what are my options? Do I just stand around and do nothing? And I'm, I'm very bad at doing that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Which is probably a good quality to have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm learning to surrender more um, in times, but I've learned to, to do as much as I can and then surrender because I feel like if, if you're in, in action and, and you're just waiting for things to happen and letting other people do the work for you, uh, I feel like it, you know, you're kind of waiting around for a while. So, yeah. There's a part of you that wanted to get there and see the no for yourself if that's what it was going to be. Exactly. Or push the boundaries. Yeah, see the no for myself. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
and be res- and and take responsibility for that and going well you know I I did I I tried and and I couldn't um I couldn't find anyone and I think that was you know like it was it was an, an answer that I always wanted to give to people when they asked me about my parents because it was always oh it's impossible oh I never tried because you know when when people sort of find out where I come from they're like oh have you looked for your parents? And that was always, it's always like the second question, have you looked for your parents? Mm. And then the the face of disappointment, oh, I'm sorry about that, you know. How has that hit you over the years? Um, I, th- I think it, I think it hits me more, hits home for me more when I speak to other Filipinos because there's a sense of pride with Filipinos um, anywhere in the world. When you're a Filipino, like you're, you're family. And so when Filipinos go, oh, you're Australian, but you, are you Filipino? And I, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a Filipino. And they're like, oh, do you speak Tagalog? And I go, no, I'm sorry, I don't. And the look on their faces when they hear that, like there is a disappointment and the, it's almost like they, they, they know that I've sort of lost something you know, and and then and then again, the question is, you know, have you looked for your parents? So those two things were like it, it always kind of cut me mm. <laughs> when I meet other Filipinos, is, and it, it it kind of almost feels like I'm a fake Filipino sometimes. <laughs> you know, back back before I went on this journey, yeah. caught in between the two cultures, yeah. I imagine of that Australian mm-hmm. and Filipino, and, mm. and a bit stuck. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So you followed the curiosity, you booked a plane um, and I remember talking to you even before you went and you went, um, I'm just going to be there. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to see what comes up, what emotions might come up. Tell me, um, before you kind of describe what that ex- experience was like, because your, um, your story is pretty unique in how you ended up in the orphanage. Mm-hmm. Can you share that, that story of a five-year-old Joel? Yeah, yeah. So I... <clears throat> I was found at a market in Quezon City. I was found by a taxi driver by the name of Joel Mancello. And he found me at Munoz Market and he took me to the police station. And when he took me to the police station, I was suffering from so much uh, trauma from the separation and, and the, uh, the anxiety of being lost and, and the, the uh, panic that I had uh, that I didn't, tell them, you know, I, I couldn't tell them my, my name or the name of my parents. But then when I look back at that, at, for a five-year-old kid, you know, that they don't know their, their parents' full name. Mum and dad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was always mama and papa. Mm. And so when the police asked me about my parents, all I could say that they were, all I could say was that they were, um, all I could say that my mother was a dressmaker and my dad was a jeepney driver. And that's, that was the only information that I could give them. And so for a child who gets found on the street without any identification, they're classified as a foundling, as someone who's an un- unknown child. And the, the police station wasn't fit for me to be there. So they transferred me to RAC, which is a detention centre for kids. And I stayed in there for two two weeks 
And then later on I was transferred to an orphanage, RSCC, which is run by a big organisation in the Philippines, uh, DSWD. And I lived there for 18 months and it was, yeah, it was, it was really disorientating because I had lost my parents or had gotten lost. And by the way, I, I walked off that morning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, the last thing I remember was waking up and my mother not being in my house. So as a, as a kid, your first instinct is to go and find or look for your, your mother. And that sort of brought me out into the busy streets of Manila because I was living in a shack that was literally, you know, one foot at the door was this, a busy road. And I just went walking and looking for my mum and next thing I know I ended up in a market. Um, it's almost, um, you know, as a parent, but, you know, hearing that story, it's almost like it's that worst fear, isn't it, of that, you know, parent, whether it's, you know, where you're out at shops or in a busy environment of, of losing a small child, but um, yeah. that sense of they're at home, they're sleeping, they're, they're okay, I'll come back in a moment. Mm. Um, and as a five-year-old, that's pretty resourceful things to go look for mum. Like that's, it's, it's, you know, it's a resourceful mm. thing. Um, but, yeah, hard. Yeah. Hard as a five-year-old to then be disorientated and just in an instant completely removed from the life that you knew. Mm. And, it, and I think it also... When I think about it, it's, it's a biological need to to be close to your, you know, your mother. Mm. Um, and so when you when you go to look for your mother and and you can't find them, and then you end up in this strange place with a lot of other sad kids, and you kind of understand that they're kind of in a little bit of the same situation. You go, where did I? How did I end up here? You know, I just want to go home. Mm. And, you know, being there 18 months, it was, you know, I guess the first few weeks or the first couple months, you just hope and pray that that somehow your parents have found you or that they're coming for you. They're, they're going to come for you and claim you back. And when that day never arrives and you start to lose hope and that you start to go, well... I guess this is my home now. This is where my this is my family. Um, it just it um, it you you start to create these um, life shaping stories about how you see the world mm. and who you are in that mm. your identity. I imagine mm-hmm. that sits into that. Mm-hmm. So you had these tiny bits of information um, from your adoption papers. That bit of information that you knew your mother was a dressmaker. Your father was a GP driver. GP driver. Yeah, GP driver. Um, and that you've been lost in this market. So you've landed at the age of 35 mm. back in the Philippines and take yourself to this market to try and find some breadcrumb <laughs> along the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How was yeah. that? Like was that what was that emotionally like when you when you I guess were back in on Filipino ground, mm. but also when you found yourself back in that market? I guess when I landed back in there, back into into Manila, one of the things I didn't really expect was that for the first time in my life that I actually blended in. And you know, being in a in a country of you know white Caucasian people, you always are the 
um, minority or you always sort of stand out. And for the first time in, in my life, I, I felt like I fitted in. Did that just, surprise you? Um, it didn't surprise me, but I, I, uh, it was one of those many experiences that started to help me, I guess, heal and make me understand that being a Filipino is actually pretty special. And, and I guess it was like the start of the journey to, um, to understand who I am as a Filipino and, and just my Filipino traits. And it was just, it was incredible because I just, you know, I, I think my mom was worried about when I was to go back that perhaps I would be in, put myself in danger or people would take advantage of me or people would know that I'm a foreigner and you know, try to take me for a ride or, you know, kidnap him, you know, mm. all those worst case scenarios that a mother can, can conger up when, when a, you know, when their child goes to a foreign country. And, but to be honest, like, you know, when I got there, I, I said, you know, like, I've got to just try to be like everyone else because I, I don't want to stick out. Um, I don't want to, you know, I kind of want to just go under the radar just to, you know, for this search. So I kind of just stripped back. I, uh, you know, <laughs> I remember when I was packing, most of my most of my luggage was just camera gear, <laughs> and there was this little <laughs> there was little little uh, uh, spot for my underwear, and I only had like you know four pieces of you know socks and, and underwear, <laughs> and that was it. And so I planned to go there and just buy local um, local clothes, clothes. Mm-hmm. so I could just just you know just blend in and I did I, I just like no one would no, no one even just sort of you know no one would even glance at me to to see you know this is a foreigner or you know they just just saw me as another Filipino and um, even though I couldn't speak the language I started to pick up the mannerisms and the body language and that kind of sort of you know got me around mm. and but when I obviously when I started talking people started to question you know you know where, where are you from and why what what are you doing what are you doing here and um yeah and you know when I came back I thought you know maybe you were talking about those bread breadcrumbs mm-hmm. I you know and I think you probably have got something to say about this but sometimes memories can come through like you know um, smell or, or or kind of sounds or and so I was hoping that that just by being there that it would just conger up some memories because um, I had very, very few memories um, in my, um, of my childhood. But, you know, when I got there, there was nothing, you know, it was just really, it, it felt like I was in a, you know, in a foreign country um, and nothing really seemed familiar apart mm. from, you know, Munoz Market. But even then I had very little memories of, of the market anyway. So... Um, so it was almost like I got there and went, oh, well. That didn't quite happen. That didn't happen, happen. yeah. And, uh, yeah, and and so I went, okay, so what does a, what does a producer do? What does a director do? And it's like, well, just have to kind of start asking questions and, and do what I can to, uh, to try to communicate my story and, and let people know what I'm here to do and, and and also ask for help. Mm. That and 
And that's hard to do, isn't it? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, to kind of go, all right, I'm going to need... That didn't quite come as easy as what I thought it was going to do. I'm going to need some some help here. Mm. Um, so I understand from your story you you had a ton of flyers with your photo as a five-year-old on it and started mm. going around the markets and, and asking people, had they seen you know, this child, did they have any memories, was there any kind of connections? But you also reached mm. out for some local help with with local media mm. um, and those, yeah, you know, outlets and things as well, mm. which is really powerful. Um, and you got a lead. Mm. Describe what that was like when when uh, you, yeah, part of some of these conversations turned into someone going, oh, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, when you talk about getting local lead, uh, local help, I, you know, I went to radio stations and, and networks over there in the Philippines asking for help and unfortunately it's a common narrative over there, you know, um, a street, street child who may sort of ended up in some sort of orphanage or in some, in, in some other care and now they're looking for their biological parents and they don't have any solid information or any names, even a name or address. And when we talk about, again, disappointments and frustrations, when I went and seeked out help, it was more like, sorry, we're, we're a bit too busy. We can't, we can't take that on, mm. you know? And so that led me to, be, oh, well, okay, well, wh- what do I do now then? And so I went back to where I was found. I went back to the market where I was found and I just enlisted some help of other locals to help me do the groundwork with flyers. And one thing led to another and we found a, uh, a lead in the market, someone who'd been there since the 80s, who had literally been and worked there at the market in the 80s. And he name, his name was Badan and he was telling telling me about a couple that he knew that that had lost a child back in the back in the 80s and they were fruit vendors and you know they were saying that he got lost around this area and the funny thing was was that you know every time i went back to badan and asked the same question it was always different answers or more information and I think the f- the third or fourth time when I went back, I was like, you know, do you, do you know of do you know who these people are, or do you have a contact? Or and they're like, yeah, I do. I'll, you know, I'll just you know I'll call them and and they'll come through. And I was like, well, why don't you tell me in the <laughs> in the first place? You yeah. know, uh, and that's that's a I guess that was part of that cultural challenge, you know, because Filipinos you, you kind of have to earn their trust a little bit. You kind of have to be around a while for them to, for them to kind of allow you, uh, allow them to suss you out and to, to work out what your intention is. You know, because you know during this time, you know the um, Duterte is, you know, is, is on this everyone's case, um, and so everyone was just a little bit on edge and very suspicious. Mm-hmm. You know, foreign guy speaks really good English. You know, international accent. You know, who what could else this, is going on here? Yeah, who yeah. could this guy be? And yeah, so he, he, you know, he made the call. We, you know, we, I think we met um, the mother's um, brother, uh, Simeon, and Simeon called Vicky, 
and I was like, wow, this is this is too good to be true. This yeah. is this is too easy, yeah. you know. Like I, 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 and one thing that was just flat, you know, you know, when you get those red flags, like those things of like, oh, it's a little bit weird. They were, you know, they were fr- fruit vendors, and my memories were that my my mom was a dressmaker and my my dad was a jeepney driver, but both were fruit fruit vendors that had um, come from Samar, um, the western part of the Philippines. Mm-hmm. So when I heard the when I heard about this lead about Vicky, part of me was like, "This is amazing! Oh my god! Like I could actually find my biological parents." But then on the other side, on the flip side, it made me question my own memories. It made made me question about the memories that I had as a kid and, and, you know, kind of asking myself, well, were these were just coping mechanisms for me or were these just fantasies that I had made up as a child to to help me um, cope with the, the loss of my missing parents? can imagine the hope that this was going to be it mm. um, would have been pretty strong It was to be able to question and go, yeah, no, well, no, no, I was just wrong. Fruit vendors, let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Um, and so when we met Vicky and we started sort of talking and we just started to kind of ask about the his boy Dante that had got lost and, you know, just what happened and... and um, you know, got him, got her to describe Dante a little bit. She then said that, you know, he got lost in 1989, not 1985. And was, this was a big blow to me because everyone at the market was saying that Vic had lost a child in 1985. And so four years is a big difference. Um, Four-year gap is a big difference, especially for a child, you know. The difference between a five-year-old and a nine-year-old is massive. And at, at, by, by 1989, had already been in Australia. So, you know, it made me go, oh. But when I showed her a picture of me in the orphanage, and it was a group picture, by the way, it was like lots of kids. Mm-hmm. And I said, is Dante in this picture? And she scanned the photo, pointed at me and said, that's Dante, mm-hmm. and started bursting out, burst out crying. And... F- at that moment, I was like, "Whoa!" Like, even though the dates don't add up, like, I can't, I can't leave this meeting without being sure of 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 um, of the, um, being sure that you're you're not my mother. Mm. So, prior to our meeting, we had al- already organised a DNA k- kit, and we had it on us. And I asked Vicky, "You know, would you like to do a DNA test just just to be sure?" Because I'm confused. Um, you know, you're saying that that I I look like Dante, and I just want to be sure. You know, would you like to do a DNA test? And so she agreed, and we did it, and and then we just put it aside for a little bit. You know, because it it took like about twenty five days to get the <laughs> to get the test back. Um. So it was yeah, it was inc- an incredible feeling to to have uh, some sort of hope and some sort of um, indication that you may be able to actually find your biological parents, you may be able to actually find that needle in the haystack. That thing for 31 years I've been told is impossible. Yeah. Maybe it's possible. Maybe it's possible and and all I needed to do was just come back to the market where I was lost and just ask, ask some questions. 
but it wasn't easy as that as that as that you know 25 days later and we we got that dna test result back it was it was brutal you know it wasn't sugar coated it was just cold hard maths 0% probability like surely 10% could we have some yeah, sort of you know nothing? like well, we have we have the same nose so right. it, should, it could be like 12% oh, you know oh you can't deny zero yeah, can I know. You? yeah I know, yeah yeah so what was that roller coaster like uh it was it was uh, it was a roller coaster because having not done that before i you know i got close to their family i went to um i went to uh I went to uh, Badan's grandma's place, uh, or Vicky's, Vicky's, uh, or Dante's grandma. Um, you know, we I think we went uh, to a, a local village two hours away from Manila. And as soon as she saw me, she was just like, Dante, Dante. And I was like, well, I'm not sure I'm Dante yet, Dante. <laughs> you know? And... And people were just like, people were sure, you know, people were absolutely sure that I was Dante. And so, you know, during that period of waiting for the DNA test, I was just meeting the family. I met, we had another family gathering where every every part of the, you know, all the family had sort of come together. And, and I think this was the, one of the first times that they, everyone had got together because when Dante had went missing, it sort of broke the family apart a little bit. And so this was just like a reunification of the family and that, you know, everyone was like back on good terms. And So you weren't the only one that was brutally hit by 0%. Mm. <laughs> it, it extended beyond. It extended beyond. And, yeah. and even though that test came back zero probability, there was still this yearning of like, you know, like I think the Dan was saying, oh, you know, we'll do another test. I'll pay for it. You know, I'll pay for the DNA. You know, and this is like a lot of money for Filipinos, a mm. DNA test. You know, it's like it's about, um, you know, 10,000 or even more than probably 15,000 peso, which is about $300 to do a mm. DNA test. And they were, they were willing to pay for it, you know. Again, because they, they didn't believe it. They were just absolutely sure that this, that, that I was Dante. Mm. So... I, I just, I've, I, I was almost feeling more for them than my own disappointment. Because um, for me, it was always, it was just about getting an answer. Was it, uh, is it positive or negative? Hmm. But, but kind of going back to the family, going, I'm sorry, I'm not Dante. It was, a, it was, it was, it was crushing for them. Yeah, I can imagine mm. that hope and, and uni- unifying mm. again. So, was there a part of you? Um, that result and going through that, did that fuel the next step? Um, and at the same time, was there a part of you going, well, we gave it a crack, we had a go, we'll go back to Australia, knowing that I've had a go. Mm. Did you wrestle with that debate or was it quite clear? Yes, yeah, so I, I think it fueled me in a sense that it provided uh, the springboard for a local network to take on the story because they had seen the work that I had done and as a filmmaker I was capturing the whole thing as though I was actually making a documentary about it, which I was doing, but I didn't know that it was actually going to even, you know, be used be or... used or anything. So in a way it was a springboard to, to, to help um, uh, the network 
have a story to tell. Um, but I, I guess even with the local media help, it was still was still hard. And and you know we can we'll talk about some of the leads that came out from that. But when you were saying, you know, uh, at the you know, did it just sort of prompt the whole, you know, at least I tried. That was sort of later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we can talk about that part because that was that was a big milestone after even all the network stuff that happened. Right. So mm. the network took up the story they'd yep. seen and, and captured. Um, so that was TV and radio? Yes, TV and radio. Yeah. yeah. So you were, um, was it Jessica Soho, mm. um, which is fairly major, uh, primetime show mm. across the Philippines. You were mm. invited to be a part of that? Yeah. So I, uh, I, I reached out to them again and I explained this, the, the circumstance that I was in and that I had done all this work and that I've got all this footage and we're waiting for a DNA test from potentially my biological parents. And so that's when they told the first story. And from that first story, um, it, it, it brought up a lot of interest to Filipinos because they wanted to see the, the DNA result. And so the second episode, sorry, so after the first episode, um, was when we got the first lead, was when I, for the first time in my life, I saw a picture of my mother and a, a photo of me before the orphanage. And g- growing up as an adopter, you don't get that privilege. Mm. You don't get any um, any documentation or any any photos of, of you as a child. And it was a big moment for me. It was a big moment to see this little boy who, you know, who was with his mother at the time and, and who um, who was with, you know, with his mother in this, in this home. And I looked at my mother in that photo and I said to myself, wow, she's beautiful. And it was funny because it, it almost looked like she was, she almost looked like a Filipino version of my adoptive mother. Wow. Yeah. Because my... My adoptive mother, Julia, I call my mum. She had uh, short, curly, um, red hair. And the picture of my mother at the time in the 80s was uh, she had short, curly, black hair. Right. Yeah, so it was like a Filipino version of my mum. Did you have a sense of connection when you saw it or was it more just being struck by...? Yeah, I was... was, was, I was in awe of how beautiful my mom was. Powerful, right? Yeah. You kind of sit and yeah, yeah. look that, at that and look at that possibility that there was a life, a family life. Yeah. Before that day in the markets. Yeah. It was a, a revelation that, you know, that my mother did care for me at that time. Had you questioned that? I did. I questioned that in the orphanage. I question that because I was asking myself, why, why didn't you find me? What, you know, I'm here. I'm here. Mm. Yeah. Um, so you got the photo. Yeah. You got that lead. I got that lead, and that lead actually came from Japan. Someone had seen the the the, the uh, first episode on cable in Japan, and the lady Dolly who saw that episode, she was actually living in the same house as my mother at the time. And that's where she recognised me and my mum 
and sent that photo in to GMA and sent it to me on Facebook. And, and I actually received that photo the day or the night before the DNA test and uh, along with a lot of other photos that people had been sending me. So it was like so overwhelming that I, I didn't even want to even look at it because I was like, no, let's just, <laughs> let's just focus on, yeah, yeah. on this result uh, tomorrow. And so we went back, we went to the, the DNA clinic and we got the results and, and it was... It was devastating because I felt like I had to just start again. It was like, it was just going back to square one. And not long after the reveal of the, the DNA test, the producer was like, "We've wait, but wait, we've got a we've got a lead to you." And I think this is really promising. You've got to hear this. You know, this this person that has reached out um, knows your mother, and she claims that your mother is a dressmaker and your dad's a jeepney driver. And and your name is, and this boy's name is also called Joel. And so, all my life I had thought that Joel Mancello was the um, the taxi the taxi driver's name um, that had picked me up. And you know, when an when an when an orphanage takes on a child, they'll they'll tend to um, name the kids. Mm-hmm. And so the orphanage named me after the taxi driver that had found me. So I always felt that, or, or I've, I always knew that that my name was, you know, given to me by um, the orphanage. And so when they said his name is Joel, I was like, "What are the odds? What are the odds? Right? This yeah. is this is this is too much. It's like you know, mother's a dressmaker, dad's a jeepney driver, and the name is Joel. It, it has to be. It has to be them. It has to be her." So it was, uh, I, I got goosebumps because for the first time in, in my life, I was like, Joel is actually my real name. It's that identity that again, identity. the identity mm. that you probably held on to um, with open palms because mm. maybe there was another name, maybe yeah. there was another thing I was known as. Mm. It's possible that that was the same name. Mm. That must have been pretty powerful. It was. It, mm. was, it was just a... Like those little, I guess that that jigsaw puzzle of of putting back my identity. Mm. So there still was a little bit of a rabbit warren to go from that photo to to finding this lady in the photo. Mm. And uh, how long did that take? And and how did you how did your hope go yeah. <laughs> through that exploration? Yeah. Look, I, I thought that to be honest, I thought that. After that lead, it was just going to be like, you know, like a sprint to the finish. And, um, you know, after the second episode, uh, when the reveal of the DNA test and and also the call out for uh, my mum, my ma, I call my ma, my biological mum, no one was coming forward. You know, I had done a couple more radio announcements. Um, I've done, I did a couple of other things. I was, even though I, I, I was getting help from the, the the local network. I was still out in the street looking for for my mom, and it was you know like I think it was in the space of uh, from the lead from the space of when I got the lead to when I had to go home was about a month, and then sort of about two weeks after that, when no one was coming forward, I was really starting to get really um, frustrated and and um, 
tired. Um, my will was really low because um, I'd, you know, it was like every day. Every day I was doing something different, whether it was on the street or doing some sort of, um, you know, appearance or talking to people or going to see, you know, uh, people that could help me out. I was just getting really, really tired and I was just starting to, I was just starting to give up. And I, I actually, I actually uh, changed my flight um, to leave earlier, which a lot of people didn't know. And I changed... Because you kind of went... Yeah, I kind of just had... An, I, I told myself I, I had enough. Mm. Like I was getting homesick. I, um, I was wanting to to go back home because Australia's home for me, mm. you know. And I just wanted to go home and just and just close it for now and just re-attend to it when I have the will again and I, when I sort of um, recharge again. And I changed my flight. It was, you know, I think changed it to two weeks uh, earlier than I had originally set. And I think a couple of days when I changed my flight, um, I got a, another, I got another lead. Um, oh, that's where I started, when I found my dad. Right. Yeah, that's I, I found my dad first. Actually, I found my dad with the help of uh, some people that had known my my mom and had known my dad Carding, and we had met someone who was really good with friends with Carding, and actually told us his last name and that sort of, uh, you know, eventuated to us, you know, being on, on, on Skype meeting for the first time. And that was, it, it was an interesting experience meeting my dad because to be honest, I was always just looking for my mum. And so finding my dad was a bit of a, a bonus. Um, and I met my half brother, and my half brother looked a lot like me. It was it was uncanny, and he um, he said to me, and I, I guess this is the this is what sort of stirred me staying longer, because um, I met my half brother, and my half brother confessed that when you were a kid, your mum your mum made us stay, um, made me stay at their place. And he apologised because he was saying that we were really mean to you. Like we were really, really mean to you. Mm. Um, and we had this huge reconciliation on Skype and I just had so much respect for him because it would have been really hard for him to, to admit that. As you say, it's 30 odd years later that yeah. it's been sitting on It's just sitting in on his, him as in, well. On him, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was just, uh, it was just one thing, something that I never even dreamed about um, happening. And and I guess along the way, you know, towards finding my mum, I kind of started to find out a little bit about what happened beforehand too. So there was a lot of other stuff that happened. Um, but that was, the, after that, you know, I did a radio announcement and... Um, and the vice president of GMA, which is the uh, the radio station that was attached to the network, uh, vice president um, of the GMA radio, um, Mike in regress, he was listening onto the radio 
um, announcement and he was very curious of what, you know, what I've been doing and, and uh, what work I've done and what, what do I know and what, what, you know, how he could help. And he invited me on his radio station um, the next morning and he said that it's prime time, you know, a lot of people listen to it. So it might be a good um, avenue for you to get your story out. And now this was like three days before I was due to leave. So I was just kind of like doing anything that I could to, to make use of the time that I had. But at the same time, I was like, I was ready to go. You know, I was ready. Yep. I was I'll do really, what I can while I'm here. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Whatever it is, I was really ready to go. And um, and I went on that show the next morning, and you know what I realized was that how hard it is for people in my situation to find their parents because if you don't have access and if you don't have the contacts and if you don't have the initiative to to do something like this, it's it's impossible. It really is. And you've been told that all your life, right? I've been told that all my life. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think what, you know, when we're talking about asking for help and how hard that was, it like I, I had to really be vulnerable in order for people to understand how much it meant to me. And I don't think if I had shared that and if I didn't, if I didn't share what it meant for me, why it was so important. Because I was on the street and a lot of people, a lot of Filipinos would say, why, why are you here? You've got a good life in Australia. Why, why do you want to go back to the Philippines? You, we'll you know, swap. We'll go to yeah, Australia. Like, this I is know, better. I know. Yeah, right. And so reality was, it, checking it, your, yeah, your it, motive or yeah. desire, what's behind this, this is weird. Yeah. Yeah, and coming from a Filipino, it was really interesting because, you know, there was people that were saying that you're really lucky that you walked off and there was a lot of people just just didn't understand why you would come back to Manila if you've already got a like a blessed life in Australia. So part of the struggle was, was to try to communicate what it actually meant for me. And so when I shared that with, with Mike, Mike really got it. He just got it. He, he was just such a gifted um, presenter, and he he knows he knows the Filipino community. He knows the Filipino audience, so he presented it in a way that Filipinos understood and took took ownership of it, and 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 gave them access to hope in in other situations of their lives. And he was, you know, he was saying that this is this is our lion. This is our version of lion, you know. And he, you know, he, and he expressed the urgency. And and then next thing I know, I, I get a call that night from the producer saying someone's come forward. They they heard Mike's announcement, and you know, we're not sure. We can't, you know. And always, you know, they were always sort of controlling my expectations. We're not sure. I can't. I can't vouch for them, but I've. You know, I've asked them some questions. There's, there's things that are kind of matching up, but we, we need you to meet her and so you can see. And I just, I remember in the car receiving that information. I was like, it's, it's actually happening. It's actually really happening. And I, 
part of me is like, am I prepared for this? Because I'm like, I'm ready to go, you know. Yeah, I'm, yeah that's right. <laughs> I'm ready. How about I come back in a month yeah. when I'm just like refueled? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, I found her. So I'll, I'll come back and, and <laughs> I'll meet her when I'm ready, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. but grasping that now's the time. This is the thing to chase. And I guess coming back to in the very, the very first instigation of this is the next piece of curiosity mm. that I'll just follow next piece of breadcrumb. Mm-hmm. Um, so following on from that, was that the lead to then uh, making a time to actually meet this woman in the photo? Uh, well, it was just uh, I had to kind of, um, I had to, I had to let go of how I wanted it to play out because the network wanted to do it in the way that they wanted to. And part of me was questioned it because they were saying, well, we're going to meet your mum back at Munoz Market where you were lost. And so part of me was like, oh, I'm not sure if that's the right or most appropriate place because, you know, leading up to leading to that point, I'd spent a lot of time at Munoz Market and Munoz Market was the place where Dante and all his family are. And I kind of didn't want to do it there because, you know, they were just suffering. They were just getting over the fact that I'm not Dante. And so I really fought with the producer going, I don't want to do it, Munoz. Like, why can't I do it somewhere else? Because, you know, I I don't want to almost uh, be inappropriate to and insensitive to the Munoz family, to Dante's family. Mm. Who three or four weeks ago I was a part of. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And they insisted and, you know, they they were really instrumental in helping me find my ma. So I, you know, I, I, I trusted their judgment and the reason why I trusted their judgment was that they had already asked the um, Badan and the Munoz family, Dante's family, if they could do it there. So mm. I agreed. Um, and then, yeah, they it was, it was really like... I, uh, it almost felt like I had, it felt, it felt like I had no sleep that night and everything was just really blurry and really, it was, everything was going in slow motion. Um, and they had said, just go over there and just wait and wait for your mum to come. So I was just standing around, just, you know, had like about seven cameras on me. It was, it was incredible. It was crazy seven cameras on, on, on different sides of, of every corner and I, they didn't tell me where she was coming from. So I was just like looking around, scanning, you know, it was just, it was almost, it was a little bit stressful. And then suddenly she sort of flanked me on the left and Ma, Ma didn't look like anything that I had pictured her to be, but I, I guess I didn't know, I didn't have any for reference. I only had a photo of her when she was 22. Um, and she she looked at me and but she didn't make eye contact with me and she was just looking down and she was just really uh i could tell that she was already in some sort of state and and but she had these these pictures in her hand and and i think that was that was her first thing that she she gave to me before she kind of hugged me and and I guess 
my prior experience with Vicky, I, I was all I was all about um, it's you know what you feel is different to what you know. So I was I was in like evidence mode. I wanted to get clarity and 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 see evidence that this that that you're my biological mother. So when she presented these photos to me, I I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I was looking at photos of me when I was a kid. And these were more photos than I that I had seen the first time. So these new photos that I'd, that I'd seen and and then she just collapsed in my arms and and uh, the the real like the real deep sobbing um, that sobbing of grief and and guilt and shame and it was just it was it was overwhelming mm. it was really overwhelming and and I and I, you know for me it was like after I kind of understood that yeah this is this is actually my biological mum my my then my nurturing kind of instinct kicked in and and was like are you okay you know like are you like i've been looking for you i've been, people saying some horrible stuff people were claiming that that you had been on the street drunk out of your mind or you were squatting at a at a cemetery you know i, I was really i was really um i was really fearful of of being too late or fearful that you know that you wouldn't recognize me that it you know that'd be too late and so all i was concerned about was like are you are you okay like you know are you are you doing okay and um and then yeah the reunion was it was just it was overwhelming because then you know like my my half brothers came um the people who had lived in the house originally came up to me and the whole of Munoz market was just shut down. There were tons of people um, watching and, and just couldn't just couldn't believe their eyes either. It was a, it was a incredible experience. Incredible. I can imagine it would be so difficult to put into words and, and you know, even what you're describing, there's there's even a battle in your head around the rational, I need the evidence first before I'll kind of open up and then mm. and then um, that beautiful kind of protective nature that obviously jumped in mm. around um, this woman who was who's your mother and, and tell me what's going on mm. and, and where can I help and, mm-hmm. and where to from here. And, um, yeah, I can only imagine the... The time that would have needed to happen to just really absorb all of that, yeah, for the people around you, but also taking that time for yourself. Mm. And as you described, this is a couple of days before your flight mm-hmm. back to Australia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I literally found my ma, and then I had to go the next day. Wow! And so many people were saying, "You found your mom? Like, what? Are, are you going to extend your trip? Like, and and she and and my mom was like." I want to take you home and people, there's so many people that want to meet you. And I was like, I, I just couldn't do that. Like after the whole reunion part, like it was just, I was, I was so emotionally exhausted after, after the whole search and then going through that. I was, and I felt bad, I felt so bad, but I, 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 I had to take a stand for myself. I had to say, no, I, I can't. I, I, I need to go home. I need to go home. I want to be home. 
and I just want to recharge and I just want to process it. And, you know, like I had fulfilled my intention there. My intention there was to search. And I said to myself, next time I go back, it's then it's about connecting and it's about just catching up on all times and, and, and find, figuring out what had, what had happened um, from her perspective. And it was really tough for her. It was really, really tough for Ma. Um, she, it was, yeah, she, and that, I guess there's that cultural thing as well because she didn't understand why I would just stay for a little bit anyway to to um, to spend some time together. But um, and I can only imagine that sense of, you go on again. <laughs> you go on again. Exactly. A bit of that, yeah. that trauma and yeah. Um, and 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 I, you know, I I didn't know. I really didn't know how she was going to deal with it. But you know, like we dealt with it in different ways. So when I got back, um, I literally couldn't work for a month. And that was so rare for me because, you know, like there was times in my life when anything emotional would happen. I'd kind of just bury myself in in my work and bury myself in in the stuff that that I knew how to do because that was like a, co- like a coping mechanism. And when I got home, I was like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll give myself a week, you know, I'll give myself a week, and then two weeks I'll just kind of like do bits and bits and pieces here and there." But I literally couldn't work for a month. It was just I didn't even want to look at an edit or pick up a camera, you know. And then talking to my mum on Facebook, which is so surreal. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. Modern world. The modern right? world. Couldn't like, have done that 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just, just messaging my mum on Facebook and, you know, her English is, is very limited. So it was really only messages of I love you, Anak. And so mm. Anak is son mm. and miss you and, you know, just little words and... But but there was little messages that were like oh yeah she's she's it's just really dealing it she's she's doing it tough because she was like you don't message me you know like I'm I'm well, I feel like that you're lost again mm. so she was reliving that grief she was waking up in sweats um, thinking that it had been lost again and you know and part of me felt really guilty because I'd sort of opened up those wounds again and then went, okay, see you, bye. <laughs> you know, like it, I felt really, I felt really bad. I felt really responsible for just sort of going in there, getting what I want and then leaving. Which is interesting because, yeah, we often, and, and even the ways, and you tell stories in, in film, but even the way movies kind of depict it is the reunion and that it's all happy from there. Mm. But, you know, there's still still a lot to go through and there's still a lot of conversations and a yeah. lot of shifting and changing. And I know you've been sharing a lot of this story. Obviously, this powerful story was aired on 60 Minutes, mm. um, you know, a number of months after that, that incredible reunion. So it's been shared across Australia and all around the world. Mm. and uh, And you now... Um, are doing a much more speaking yourself, so sharing mm. your own story, which which I just love that um, that you've been a storyteller for so many years, and here you are, you know, sharing the, your ultimate kind mm. of story, and that's a story that will continue to evolve. Mm. Um, in terms of your own identity, and we've touched on it a little bit, um, 
you know, 12 months ago, making that, you know, following that, that curiosity um, to then asking for help, mm-hmm. um, hitting those roadblocks of doubt mm-hmm. and, and then having that moment where the impossible became possible. And even I'm sure your your Australian family and friends who were protective in going, don't worry about it, you're okay. Mm. <laughs> um, it would have been inspiring and amazing for them. But how has that experience had an impact on on your identity, being a, a Filipino Australian, um, being a, an adoptee, but also now re- really seeing that you have a biological family who who want to connect with you. What, how has that shifted and changed for you, or how is that continuing to shift and change for you? I think it's 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 definitely been a process. You know, you, you don't just wake up and go, "Oh, okay, cool. I'm 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 totally Filipino now." You know, <laughs> you know, part of it is is relearning the language, which is is really difficult. You know, because there's a lot of wounds around that and um, a lot of expectation, cultural expectation mm. as well. Uh, I, I, I describe it as claiming back my my identity. You know, it's like I had lost it, and now I'm claiming it back. And that first, I guess, the, f- the first initial step of claiming it back was when I went to the Filipino embassy, and I I claimed my Filipino passport back. Yeah. And that was it. Was huge for me. It was huge. It was like. It was like the Philippines saying, welcome back, welcome home. And when I landed back in the Philippines, it was that. It was like, welcome home. Welcome home to the motherland. Welcome home to where you come from. And and then further to that, it, you know, like as I, after the, after the reunion and, you know, you're very right in saying that the reunion is only just the first, it's only the beginning and search and reunion in the media is always glorified as some, some huge thing, but they don't really talk about what happens next. Mm. And what happens next is, is, uh, going, okay, what do we do with this relationship? How do we integrate this? How do I integrate this into my life and how do they integrate me in my life? You know, we live on the other side of the world. It's not just on the other side of the world. We we live in two different cultures, very two different cultures. So part of it is going, okay, how do I be Australian and then how do I be Filipino? And how I do that is by just by going back and, and and exploring what it means to be a Filipino and honouring the traits of Filipinos. Because one thing that I learned being back was that Filipinos have just got the biggest hearts and it's just ingrained in them. It's 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 you know, it's it's all around family and it's all about it's all around it takes a village to raise a child. It's around um, food. And it's just, it's just, it's like I'm getting better at just being and just sitting and just being in a room and just that's that's all we do. It's just, just we're just together. Because Australian culture is like, okay, what do we do? What do we do? Where do we go? What's the intention of this? 
are we moving forward? We're on a schedule. Is <laughs> everyone okay? Yeah, no, like, yeah, we, you yeah, know, even yeah. Christmas days like that, right? Exactly. Like, right, right. Yeah. Bring the food out. We've got to yeah. get this done and run. Wow. Yeah. And yet, that is, you know, and I do a lot of work even in the corporate space and working with executives, and that's actually the thing they're craving. So it's fascinating yeah. that that's that's a big takeaway for you as yeah. well, or a piece of that that culture. You come back and go, just hang, just just be, totally, just totally, just hang, just grab a chair. It's like when I. When I was hanging at Munoz Market, and the first couple of times I would hang, they just get a plastic chair, put it there, and you sit down, and then they would do something else, and I'd be like, am I, <laughs> "What am, do I do? What am I, <laughs> are they coming back? Are they coming? Yeah, are they coming back? Do they? Are they, are they am I waiting for something?" <laughs> or, and then every now and then they'll come and you know, hey, you know, speak in broken English, and we'd kind of, you know, we'd kind of do some sign language and. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd help, you know, putting some of the fruit together that they're selling or, you know, but it would just, you know, and then sometimes at night we'd just hang and play cards and drink beers and, and peanuts and and, um, and and I guess one thing that I learned from the Filipinos too is that they will give you um, whatever they can, whatever they can offer. And it was really... It was really humbling because, you know, like when I would go to Munoz Market and when I'd spend time with Dante's family, you know, Badan and Diane and Uncle Jerry and Simeon and, you know, like I I, I would try to, you know, pay for food or I'd give, try to give them some money. No, 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 no. You know, like they would feed me. They would make sure that I was okay. Um, so I really kind of understood where my my nurturing and my giving side comes from. Yeah, I was going to say mm. um, some of that I imagine and having known you but also as a filmmaker, what you do is just sit and hang with people yeah. and ask some questions and yeah. and very generous spirit yeah. who you are. So I can imagine there was some clicks of the dial going, ah, oh. mm. <laughs> that's where that comes from. Yeah. It kind of sits in there yeah. as well. Yeah. With, um, with that... Uh, the experience that you've gone through, what were some of the the lessons that you'll carry forward? And you've just described a couple around just that Filipino culture that mm. has been amplified and, and for you to realise actually they're, they're things I want to carry forward. But mm. is there any others that um, that come to mind, whether it's around that, you know, follow your curiosity, mm. ask for help? Mm. Uh, like is there any other kind of skills that have really stuck with you through the experience that you've just described? Yeah. I guess I, I I sort of got a different or a deeper sense of um, asking questions, and sometimes you have to ask the same question a few times or in different ways to get different answers. Um, what are the lessons that I learn? I can imagine that persistence too. That yeah, yeah, not just no or uh, not sure is. You can probe a little bit more, sit a little bit longer. Yeah, and I just think I think I kind of um, learnt to be a little bit more um, tactile in, in how I go about trying to find some answers because I really understood that it's it's really about the question that you ask and how you ask it um, and how how much you ask it mm. uh, can sometimes give you just that little clue that might not be related to the search, but it might give you a clue of how to 
go about approaching it better or giving you an idea of how you else how else you can go around about it you know so you know with roadblocks i i feel like you know rather than trying to push through it there's always a way to go around it um and i guess that's probably i kind of learned that from my dance experience being a dancer for um you know before i was a filmmaker and uh, you know, it's about kind of dancing around a problem or working at, working uh, working around someone to get to where you need to go to, and and figuring out that traffic and so yeah, it was it was just a, a, about sort of dancing around a road a roadblock that that may um, rather than trying to you know um, you know push um, through push or through just or not, stop yeah yeah or stop or knock mm. trying to knock down a door. Yeah. which which you know sometimes it's just closed it's just locked you just you don't have any control over that yeah. yeah yeah and then come back where else can we go what's another pathway another step forward yeah yeah so what's next for you in that um i guess in yeah the evolution of your kind of identity um mm. and who you are i know you've got a real drive to kind of keep talking to people about your story mm. um doing a lot more work in the kind of conference space but what are you excited about in terms of what's next for you oh i'm yeah i'm really i'm really pumped at the moment um we were talking about a little bit about this earlier about how um what's really cool about my job is i get to relive those moments and i think it's been really cool um or an interesting interesting part of the process is is reliving the moment all over and over again and then also um, um, exploring what's next and exploring how we integrate. And so when I've been editing a lot of the footage that, that I play during my talks and, and, and little things that I'm doing to, um, to uh, make my documentary that I'm making with Channel 9, I, I get to really process things and for the first time in a long time, I w- I've been cutting and, and and getting teary, you know, like really like like the emotion is still raw for me when I when I cut stuff, and it's been this beautiful experience of crafting my narrative, but it's it's been actually a processing thing Cathartic for me. as yeah. well. Yeah. very uh, cathartic it's it's been a, an amazing way for me to to really process it you know and, and a lot of people process it in different ways and a lot of people process these big life moments in different ways and I think this is how I process things is is making something and um, so I'm really excited about making this full feature documentary that um, I go to post in December January I've got a couple more things to shoot. I'm going to LA next week to hopefully spend some time with my dad and my dad's side of the family because we hadn't really spent a decent amount of time and I want to honor that honor that part of myself and so I you know I, I get to go to the states and and know that there's roots there in the states for me. Um and yeah, next year is 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 about you know sharing this story, um, and again, it's been cathartic 
talking about it. Um, the more I talk about it, the more insight I get. And I've definitely got more insights t- today, Ellie, so thank you. Easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's beautiful to unpack it and I think, as you say, different people will do their own process, whatever it is that they're going through or they're processing mm. in different ways. But I think what I, I take from that is to take the time yeah. Whatever way, in your way, it's um, through speaking and, and film editing and actually then visually being able to see that. Um, mm. But I think so often in this busy world where we're kind of going, right, that's done, what are we moving on to? Like surely mm. surely you've sorted that out mm, by now, whereas mm, mm. we don't often give ourselves or even the people around us permission just to just be and if the tears come up or if the laughter comes up, then just sit in that yeah. as well. Yeah. So that's exciting. Yeah. And I've also... Uh, taught myself or I'm getting better, uh, I'm getting better at, at uh, acknowledging a win because it's always about, um, you know, when I reach a certain milestone, then it's like, what's next? Mm-hmm. You know, what's next? Oh, gosh, we're terrible at that. I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, and, and that feeling of what's next, what, that, what comes up for me is that feeling of lost because when you don't know what's next, that feeling of being lost is very real again. And so... You know, I want people to know that just because I had found my parents and I'd found my biological parents and I'd found where I come from and I found my cultural identity and I'm claiming that back, I still get I still get those feelings of loss. But the difference now is that I know that it'll, it'll go away with time, as you're saying, you know, mm. give it time. And just learning to just to um, acknowledge the win and acknowledge those milestones and go, I'm just going to just chill for a second, you know, just going to, just going to um, absorb this and just, just rest for a little second and just be still and, and appreciate, you know, what has happened and appreciate the people that have, you know, played a monumental part in it. And, and then the, the next step will just um, present itself, which, which is what it's always been doing, you know, since I started, just something will present themselves, it'd be an opportunity. I'll go, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I'm going to do that. Just be open to it, but yeah. but sit in the now, maybe mm-hmm. the Filipino way. Yeah. yeah. So to, I could keep this conversation going <laughs> <laughs> and I think maybe we should, maybe it'd be interesting to touch base with you in a couple of months and mm. after the documentary and, and, and even sit where you're at. Yeah. Um, but the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When I say that phrase to you, mm. uh, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? I think to, to live a standout life, you really need to, um, I think it, it, it's about following your truth. It's, 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 it's about finding it and then following it and living it. So what's really shifted now is that I only do what I feel is true to, to who I am as a Filipino and as Australian. So living a standout life is about finding your truth and following your truth once you found it and knowing that it's, it's a constant journey of discovery. And it's, it's scary. There's, there's, it's, it's uncomfortable. Um, and there'll be roadblocks, but what makes you stand out is is um, being able to work around them, and 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 asking, 
asking for help. Thank you, JD. <laughs> I think it's time to sit and just celebrate what we've just done. <laughs> yeah. How good's that? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.